Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. Originally, when I wanted to start this series, I had come up with a little cute alliterative title, which was Compassionate Conservatives. And when I offered that up and asked for ideas and feedback and what people thought about it, I got negative feedback. People were like, no, 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 don't do that. Then my first interview with someone who was willing to publicly admit that he supported Trump used that term, compassionate conservative, while we were having our conversation. And for me, it was like a sign, like, go with that title. Someone actually used it. And for me, I just, synchronicity and coincidences and serendipity speak volumes to me. And so for me, it solidified the reason to call this series the Compassionate Conservative Series. The intent is simply to pull back the labels and the rhetoric and to look at the people behind the ballot box to look at the people behind the Trump vote. Because for me, I'm, I'm tired of hating people simply because they like somebody I don't like. When we were young, it used to be this thing that if you didn't like the musicians that I liked, something was wrong with you. I distinctly remember having arguments with people and formulating ideas around people because I was told that if we didn't have the same kind of music interest, that means that we probably wouldn't get along. And I even remember like whenever I dated a, a new boy, it was I had to listen to his music because he didn't like my music. And I had, for whatever reason, thought that not liking the same music meant that we couldn't get along on any other level. So music was my politics back in the day. And if you didn't get down with my music, you weren't my people. And that was just the kind of messaging that I I don't even know where I got it from. I know I didn't come up with this on my own because I like all music. And so I never really cared what other kind of music people like. Of course, you know, when people would tell me they didn't like Prince, I'd kind of look at them like, what is wrong with you for not liking Prince? But that doesn't mean that there's something actually bad about the wholeness of that person. It's just like, fine, they don't understand good music. That's their fault. They're missing out. (laughs) I'm sorry. I love Prince. But the thing is, it, it doesn't matter. And I came to a very late conclusion about this very political music stance that I had with Corey, my husband. He is a farmer. He is from rural America, little small town, Minnesota. And of course, he listens to country music. Me and country music were like enemies. Not so much because I hated country music, but because I had embraced this idea that country music was crappy music and I never bothered to listen to it. I had friends when I was when I was younger that listened to country, but I never really paid attention to it. I just remembered thinking, this just isn't my kind of jam. Can we listen to Jodeci? Can we listen to Janet Jackson? Can we listen to Prince, you know? But going forward, you know, that was the one thing. And my husband didn't like my music, right? I liked R&B. I liked rap and still do. 
And that just, that music spoke to me and it delivered messages to me. And one of the things my husband liked to do was play songs for me to let me know that that's how he felt about me. You know, I'm a writer. I, I, I was big into poetry and just like expressing my heart in sonnets, if you will. And I did that often with Corey in the beginning of our relationship. It was just an easier way for me to communicate instead of yelling or instead of sobbing over, you know, sentiment. But I, I appreciated that about him. And that's what made me want to listen to his music. He heard it in a way that it resonated so deeply that he thought, this is exactly the way I feel about her. This is how I feel about Danielle. This is the way Danielle makes me feel. And that for me was the, I don't know, shift into appreciating country music. And I still do. I mean, uh, and my husband likes Florida Georgia Line, and I can't stand them. And, you know, and then I, I can get hooked on a stupid Luke Bryan song. And I know Luke Bryan just came up and interrupted the NBA draft. And so that's probably even a name I shouldn't be dropping right now. But <laughs> let it be known. I, I, I do like a little bit of Luke Bryan. But I don't like watching him. His performance style is just not Michael Jackson or Prince. Anyway. That's kind of what the intent was behind this, interviewing Trump supporters, talking to Trump supporters, and and just getting to know the person behind the vote. We are so quick to put a label on somebody, and you know I say this all the time, that we're not willing to look underneath what label we put on the people. And what often happens when we put labels on people, we put labels on these people when we're feeling something. Not necessarily when we're thinking and processing things through, but just because we're getting some kind of a visceral, maybe gut reaction, and automatically we just want to go to this unconscious paradigm programming of there's the label, there's the association, and then from there we determine whether or not that person that makes us feel that way is worth investing energy into. But it's it's a mistake on our end to do that because what we get into the habit of doing is equating our feelings with a knowing. The way something makes me feel, the way that that somebody's commentary makes me feel isn't me. I'm not my feelings. And I know we are in this era of our feelings mean something versus facts don't care about your feelings. But for me, I always go back to this this repetitive conversation my friend Cordell and I have all the time is that feelings are fleeting. And we can't sit in our feelings too long. We can't identify as our feelings. And that's not to say that your feelings can't be real or aren't real. That's not what I'm insinuating here. My feelings are real. I'm really feeling whatever it is I'm feeling when I'm feeling. But my feelings aren't my truth. How I feel right now isn't the truth of who I am. And that's just the thing I want us to remember. Feelings are real and feelings matter. And we should hear our feelings and feel our feelings. And decide what our feelings are trying to tell us about whatever the situation is that we're experiencing. But that's not the truth of who we are. And that's where I think the confusion comes into play. And this is a nation of identifying our feelings right now. We want you to know what our feeling is. And we want you to know why. But sometimes I wonder, do we really know why we feel the way that we do? In a lot of instances, our feelings reveal our fears. So it's just a really clever way for us to, I don't know, 
maybe macho up our fears by expressing them as these aggressive, hostile feelings and thereby identifying by those feelings. It's something I remember learning about when I was immersed in therapy and trying to work through conflicts within the family with the in-laws and everything. And it was like this this aha moment that I had when I finally understood why my father-in-law couldn't change his perception of me. He wasn't willing to let go of the way that I had made him feel in certain instances. And so what he did was he held on to those feelings. And those feelings have now become descriptions of Danielle. My ex has done this, I believe, too, is the way that I make these people feel. And we do this to people and people do this to us. The way somebody makes me feel is the way that I now identify that person. I identify that person by the way they made me feel that one time. And that's so limiting and it's so unjust because what we're doing is we're saying that one moment defines a person. And I have had so many moments that were reckless, that were impulsive, that were violent, that were mean, that were wretched. And I have repented of those moments. I have come to understand that what I was feeling in that moment and that action that I did and that behavior that I had demonstrated was not the best of me. And if I know that that was not the best of me, I do not want to define myself by those moments. So taking that forward, we shouldn't identify people by moments and by feelings. And that's just the general theme here. That's what I want to encourage. Let's encourage each other to let go of the way people make us feel and stop thinking that our feelings equate to knowing people. The way you make me feel says nothing about who you are as a person. And the way that I feel is under my control, not yours. Another person cannot make me feel a certain way. Physically, yes, they can make me feel pain if they harm me, but I am the only one in control of my own thoughts and my own reactions and my own emotions. And so if I don't want to define myself as something bad that I did, if I don't want people to judge me based on how I check a mark at the ballot box, isn't that how we should treat other people as well? So ultimately, the Compassionate Conservative series is just about showing you the conservatives, (laughs) they're reflections of God too. Okay, Trump supporters are not evil. They are not racist. They are not misogynist. They are not homophobes. We have to stop painting an entire collective of people as something negative. We can say, I know someone who is a racist. I know someone who is actually misogynistic. And they just so happen to also vote for Trump. I'm totally okay with that. I know a lot of racist progressives. I know a lot of racist card-carrying Democrats. I know a lot of sexist Democrats. I know an incredibly large amount of homophobic yet progressive Christians. So we need to be careful about where we lay our lines down and, and how hard of a line we're willing to take. Because when we get into being that narrow in the way that we view people, we have to remember that narrow view is the same way we're viewing God. Yes, humanity reveals itself in both good and bad. And if we wanted to make quick deductions and generalizations about people to make a point, sure, we could do that. But I would argue that every human being has the potential to do good or evil. It doesn't matter who you vote for. It doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you say you're on. It doesn't matter even what you say on your social media. I know your social media is not a reflection of the wholeness of who you are. Do you?
My guest today is Pastor Jeremy Evans. He is currently working on a book that deals with addiction and overcoming objections to God. My local peeps might know him from when he spent his time working at Project Turnabout as a resident chaplain, and he's a Trump supporter. I encourage you to check out his author page, which is authorjeremyevans.us, where you can find his blog, The Dusty Disciple. In this episode, we're going to talk about everything from Trump to the difference we see between conservatives and liberals. And then we dig into a little bit of mimetic theory. We talk about the case of groupthink. And we talk about how basically conservatives and liberals, Republicans and Democrats, they're the same song, just different lyrics. Ultimately, though, the difference is how we get people the best help differs from one side to the other. We talk about wars and the idea and theory behind calling the herd. And then we hop into psychedelics. So listeners, as always, I ask you to compassionately consider the perspective of Pastor Jeremy Evans. Spread love, not the coronavirus. I enjoy what I do because I get to help families. So that's good. That's good. And is that what brought you over to Arizona? Just that opportunity? No. Well, the there's a couple of reasons. Um, the last few years, my wife Callie has had some really um, awful health challenges. Mm. We're high school sweethearts, but she um, she's diagnosed with epilepsy at age 15, diabetes at age 12, mm. and it's kind of the symptoms have fluctuated for the last four years. She's had a lot of trauma relative to seizures. So we're, we've been at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, kind of back and forth. And so one of the things, one of the things that we, nice sweater, love it. <laughs> <laughs> one of the uh, things that the doctors at the Mayo Clinic recommended was that, um, look, if you guys are going to um, go to Arizona when you retire, why not consider doing it early? We think it would improve her quality of life. Um, mm-hmm. So we put our house up for sale. I quit my job at Project Turnabout. You probably have yeah, I know heard that. of that. Mm-hmm. That's where I worked for the last 10 years as chaplain. Um, and we moved down here and, and we just kind of put it all on the line. And her health has increased and improved. The quality of life's improved. And That's good. our two daughters seem to love it down here, but they fly back to Minnesota almost monthly. So, yeah, you know. It's their teenagers. They they got their friends and social lives. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember my grandpa had to move to Las Vegas because of his arthritis and just other health issues. I thought that I never knew that that how much the weather could actually impact your health. And then I hear about like seasonal and annual depression and um, people who literally go through like kind of a meltdown if they come from the south and move up north and don't acclimate properly. And I had no idea. I thought that's so strange how weather can impact our health, but it's, it can. I mean, in Minnesota, it's very depressing for a lot of people. It's dark. Yeah. And uh, I, I go through it. I hate it. 
I mean, I love, I love it because I'm kind of introverted. So I'm like, I don't really care. And I hate the cold, but I hate the <laughs> cold. And sometimes I want to go somewhere. So <laughs> I get it. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Just being here in Minnesota, especially and seeing what, um, it, it kind of feels like it, I, I, I could be wrong because I'm not really good at it, but do you feel like Minnesota could swing a different way politically given the climate that we're at right now? Because I feel like I know so many more Trump supporters in Minnesota than I do any other kind of supporter. Like that's all I hear about, like my neighbors and my friends and, and fellow farmers, everyone seems to be a Trump supporter. I'm just jumping right into this topic too, don't mind me. Sorry, go for um, it. <laughs> but I just, I feel like there is going to be a climatic shift and I don't know, I feel like we need to get prepared for this and that's why I kind of, 18 months ago, I would have been on board with a lot of people and been like, these are Trump supporters and this mm -hmm. is the box I'm putting them in. But I'm tired of that. I'm tired of being told I have to hate people I don't know. I'm tired of being told that I have to judge people I don't know. I'm tired of seeing progressive Christianity stick with this far left liberal agenda of demonizing the other side or the church side or the evangelical side. And so I just really appreciate your willingness to talk about this so that we can put to rest these dumb cliches that we have formulated about what we think about a Trump supporter or, and, and I don't, I don't care if you're like, I love Trump. Or even if you're just like, look, I voted for him and I'm behind him and I'm probably going to vote for him again. And why? Because we need, we, we need to peel this back so we can stop hating each other. Otherwise we're going to have a civil war and it's going to look like something we're not prepared for. So I like the way you think and I, I love your generosity. <laughs> Thank you. I, lo I love the way you think brilliant mind. Thank you. So what is, where are you at right now politically? You said that you would be willing to talk about how you're a Trump supporter. So what does that mean? What does that look like for you? And um, going from there, just as a follow-up question beforehand, how do you mm, defend yourself when people come after you about your support for him? Well, uh, those are great questions. I, I, I am a Trump supporter. I, I probably swing more towards the conservative end um, fiscally, and I'm sure that a lot of my progressive friends would would call me out and say, "Hey, you know what? You work in social services, and a lot of the things that you mm -hmm. you identify with and, and and cling to are probably on the other end of the spectrum." So I would say I'm probably more socially progressive, but uh, conservative in terms of my uh, you know the fiscal end of things. I would like to have a little smaller government. Um, mm -hmm. I don't like government telling people what to do. In the words of Ronald Reagan, um, the, the worst <laughs> words you can hear is, hi, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> so yes. um, so I, I like the idea of small government. I, I came to Trump not because I was looking for a national pastor. Um, I didn't come to vote for Trump because... I thought he was the most moral individual. Um, obviously, the terms that are thrown around today with misogyny, um, homophobe, um, transphobic, uh, you know, all these words that racist that, uh, yeah. are, are rooted in, in a rhetoric that is meant to keep us clicking, uh, keep us glued to the TV, 
you know, keep us, uh, in, you know, ingesting and consuming the media that, um, you know, they, they want our attention. They don't really necessarily report the truth. And, um, and I think a lot of people are, are well aware of that. One of the things I like about Trump, I like that he's not a part of the political elite. He's not an insider. Mm. Um, he's played both sides of the fence pretty well. Um, he's a pretty shrewd businessman. I don't know that I would probably like him if I did business with him. He's, he's had some pretty shrewd. I mean, he's a different duck. He's, he's a, just a different guy all around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the reason that I voted for him initially was that I just didn't think that the Democratic ticket offered anybody that I could wholeheartedly support, given the, the history that I had seen over the last eight years. I, I didn't consider, I didn't, I didn't hate Obama. In fact, he, he's my president. I prayed for him every single day. I prayed that, that he would um, make decisions that would be the best for the nation and for the, for the, the best, for the, the broadest possible uh, majority of people. Um, I supported a lot of his policies. So I didn't, you know, when, when I, I come into liking Trump, I, I'm kind of, or I, I vote for Trump, Trump and, I, and I talk about that, um, and I'm characterized as being a misogynist, and, and, I, and I think to myself, well, I, I never really woke up thinking I hated women, or yeah. I, have, I have three older sisters, two younger sisters, and uh, I think they're pretty amazing women, <laughs> you know, I, I'm a father of two daughters, yeah. I, I want them to do the best they can in life. I don't think of myself as a homophobic or a transphobic person. I don't have any axe to grind with anybody. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I'm sure we probably align politically in a lot of ways. I know. I'm sorry. I'm taking the long wooden route here to getting to the point. Oh, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll get there. I support Trump because I feel like to hate him and to sow division and to not ha- to have a desire to not see him succeed means that you know we fail as a nation no matter what party you side you're on and and mm-hmm. i feel like that the volatility um of civil discourse has just taken a nosedive um especially with the advent of social media i you know i i listen to people like andrew clavin um i listen to people like ben shapiro mm-hmm. um i'm a big listener and supporter um and i don't know why i can't think of his name um he's the canadian professor that Jordan Peterson. To, yeah, I listen to Jordan. Mm, I love Jordan Peterson. And you know, Jordan Peterson isn't even uh, um, a religious man. He is an agnostic and a professor of psychology. So it's it's interesting to hear him get lumped in with uh, you know the likes of um, the the right wing, the alt the alt right um, yeah. folks when he's really clearly you know taking a stand against them. So this this pigeonholing and and putting each other in boxes, I don't see as being a real helpful type of way to dialogue and so when you you brought this up I thought, hey, this is a really neat opportunity to kind of see where, you know, two folks kind of in the middle of things are at. I I just kind of secretly wonder, I think there's probably a lot of people that are kind of more left center and, and, and right center that have more in agreement yeah. than they do in disagreement. But it's just the, the media um, and social media and, and really um, hot tempers <laughs> that, uh, that clash and argue. And, you know, I, I think that we probably have more in common than we think we do. <laughs> you know, I have a sister that uh, a majority of my family is very much against Trump. Mm-hmm. 
um, and we don't have a lot of conversation on that. But for example, my sister-in-law, she'll probably laugh when she hears this posted. If you're a Trump supporter, you're all of these things. Yeah. And, you know, and I just kind of push back as a clergy and as a, a, a member of a clinical team that worked for a publicly funded treatment center. There are some like ethics that I kind of followed about not pushing a religious view or a political view publicly for fear that it would affect a person's willingness to seek help for addiction or trauma or gambling treatment or, or, you know, any kind of thing like that. So I think I've kind of taken those ethics into my political personas, whether it's on LinkedIn or Facebook or, you know, or whatever. And I just, I, I like you, I want to, what is it that we agree on? What can we come together yeah. on and, and promote unity rather than such divisive rhetoric that is really designed, custom designed to divide us. <laughs> so it is. And what it does is it, it characterizes us in a deplorable light. I mean, I still go back to the days of Clinton's campaign, the deplorables comment, the basket of deplorables or whatever it was. And I thought, is this where we're at right now? Is this how we're going to be going forward? Is we're going to take such cheap shots at the other side that we're going to just paint them all with this broad brush and say, this is who they are now. And I understand the need for us to look at things and categorize things and and maybe in a way put things in a box, but I don't think it's healthy for the way that we're using it as the definitive identity of each individual person because what I get from the Bible is Jesus met everybody individually and saw into their heart and didn't judge them. And I think that's a practice we're supposed to be duplicating. And we're not doing that on social media. We're saying, here's what you are. I've labeled you as this. This is the rhetoric I've heard that I'm supposed to use against you. There it is. Moving on. I feel so great. I'm such a progressive Christian. And I'm like, we can't hate people. <laughs> like that is yeah. that that is the antipodes of what Jesus was talking about. Like love your enemy. Okay, you just labeled Trump your enemy. You're supposed to love him. Like how do you love that? And it's just frustrating. There's just there's so many contradictions that are taking place that I see and and, and I'll put it out there and I'll generalize. It, I see it on the left. I see it with my liberal leaning friends. I see it with my left leaning friends and, and connections. They are so willing to stick to that that route of dualism and just divide people and and I'm over here like when I was a conservative we didn't do it like that. And so I don't know what this liberal stuff is about, but I mean I find myself going I'm thinking I I associate better with conservatives because I'm willing to go, that's God. That's God. That's a reflection of God. This is God. Like this person was made in God's image. Why are we not seeing that? Instead, you're like, that's the enemy whom I've chosen to hate. And I justify my hate because racism, homophobia, misogyny, blah, 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 blah. And it's crazy. It's just all crazy. It's crazy, crazy. And it it boggles my mind. And I think we've got to do something to fix it. And this is how we do it. We do it in conversations. And we do see, you're a human. Jeremy, you're a human. Hi, I'm a human. (laughs) Score one, okay? We got something in common. You're a parent, I'm a parent. I mean, why can't we do that? Like, why is that scary now? I don't understand. Yeah, I'm a cat dad. 
you know, do you have cats? Uh, I, I live on a farm. Do I have cats? Let me tell you. Okay, I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Sorry. we have cats. <laughs> you know, it is, I, on the way home from, from work today, I was listening to a Tony Campolo podcast with Shane Claiborne. And they they said that if you are a, a supporter of Trump, you have lost all moral authority as a Christian. Mm. And I have followed Tony Campolo for, for decades in ministry. And I think he's offered a lot of really amazing contributions to theology and ecclesiology and Christology and all these different things. And Shane Claiborne is another guy that I've really looked up to is I'm like, man, I love what you're doing. I, I absolutely love what you're doing. But when, when they said that, I know their hearts enough not to take offense or internalize their message because they're, I know that they're motivated. I, I now feel like they're motivated by a real genuine heartfelt desire to, to make the world a better place for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so I, I get it. But what I don't understand is the need to co-sign, can I just say it, co-sign this BS yeah. of of this divisive rhetoric and it's it's these rhetorical devices that are meant to pierce wound maim discredit harm hurt and shame and i i'm i'm not sure if you're a big Brene brown fan but i'm huge Brene brown fan yeah i like her and i think her research on shame is so needed in in the national conversation because i think you know she doesn't really come out where she's at politically, but I, I think she seems to lean a little bit more towards one direction than the other, but she's also from Texas. So it's hard to tell. She's yeah. Got a, yeah, know, she's got exactly. She's just a sweetheart. I just adore her. I just, I love her work and I just look up to her as a kind of a mentor in what I do, but I, I really like what she says about shame. And, and when we shame people with their language, it's the way we discharge pain. Yeah. And so I just wonder how, if if there's just a lot of collective brokenness in the world where people are discharging their shame and and I I think because I've I followed you in, in your your dialogues for a while I think you're a big Rene Girard fan right yeah Girard in, you know and and just to kind of dip into that just a little bit in mimetic theory it seems like we elect a president to be our national scapegoat uh-huh. and I don't know if I'm it's like here's a person that when we can't agree on anything else, let's just point fingers at this person and, and just say it's all their fault. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, good or bad or whatever sociological function that serves uh, in our collective consciousness uh, as Americans, I don't know. I'm sure there, there are greater minds that could articulate that, but I, I just think rather than, you know, look at you and say, you, you believe these things, therefore, this is who you are, and that exhaustively defines you, and I won't associate with you, or you have no worth, because, you know, you're defined by these opinions, and it's like, but if, if you were this, the same person pulled over on the side of the road with a flat tire, I bet nine out of ten people would stop to ask, can I help you change your tire, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yes. And I made this distinction when I worked as a chaplain. Um, this is kind of an interesting um, way to look at things, but when when people would bring up their resentment or their grudges, their their hurts and harms, the hatred they had towards others, it, it, especially if somebody got on their nerves on the unit in, in the treatment center, and, and I would sit down and, and do uh, pastoral care with them, I'd 
I'd say, you know, a lot of times the things that we see in others that bother us are the things that we deny the existence of within ourselves. And, and so we're projecting, but I would kind of cut to the chase and say, let's say the, your peer in, in the treatment community fell over dead in group and they're turning blue and, and you, you just, you know, they're, they're obviously dead. What would you do? I'd make a joke. Would you frisk their pockets for loose change in smokes and then take off? <laughs> or would you, you know, check their pulse uh, and, and call 911 and start helping? And everybody always says, well, we would help them. And I would say, well, why would you help someone that you hate? Why would you cut through your, your cognitive dissonance and just get into that place of helping them? And they couldn't really answer. And I'd say it's because that's your genuine character. A core value for you is if you see another human being in distress, you will do whatever it takes. You, you'll, you will walk on glass and, and go through the fire to help that person. Yeah. And so the words we say and the phenomena and the rhetoric that we, we communicate don't always re- reflect or bring exposure to that, that real core value. I just a person that believes the best about people even if they don't deliver their best or aren't willing to extend the courtesy because I don't see how the world can function any other way. Mm, that's so true. And I agree with you. I'm, I'm like that too. And I think it's frustrating for a lot of people as I too, I'm like, no, there's something good in every single person. And if this person and I are in an exchange or interaction, I'm called to look for that. I'm called to do it. That's what we do for one another. And if I can help this person, I help this person. I was just having this conversation with my husband and we were talking about something similar. Like I said, you know, we all walk around and like our bios have to say everything we believe in. This is who I am. You know, this is the definitive me. And I think that is not enough space to describe Danielle, but okay. Um, but you know, we need to let people know what we believe and we exchange what we believe through words on social media. I mean, that's how most of us do our discussions now. That's what our dialogues entail. For most of us, a majority of our day is spent with, um, no body language, no physicality, no vocal tone whatsoever. And we call it communication. And we think that we're clarifying anything, but we're not. But regardless of what we're laying down, what we believe, that doesn't have anything to do with how we treat people necessarily. And I know a lot of people are like, your beliefs do too, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, okay. So I'm going to take John MacArthur, for example. We know he believes in hell. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe people will be sent to hell. Okay. Do I believe that John MacArthur vocalizes his hatred for for homosexuals for the gay community yeah do i think john macarthur would refuse to save a gay person from a burning building even though he says that person will burn in hell eternity for their choices like do you think that's what kind of person he is no i think he's gonna go pull whomever is in the burning building out because that's what you do for people but we have it stuck in our head that these ideas, these definitions, these bios represent the wholeness of who we are and represent what everything about us. Like, really? Like, we can fit that in 280 characters or less? Who I am? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, we have to stop doing that. But that's what we walk around doing. This is who you are right here in your 280 characters and your profile picture. That's you. Yeah, that's me on a good day when I felt like typing out what I am and I did my makeup and I filtered and I edited and sure. But that's not me. 
And that's not who we are. And I don't understand why we're so willing to limit our views of other people. Like, why do we want to do that? I, 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 I agree completely, you know, to kind of dial back to the, the phenomenon. I hope it's okay if I change subject just a yeah. little bit. Yeah, let's do but it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get back to it. I, I, one of the things I was thinking about, uh, your first question was, what, what, what phenomenon is it that captured kind of middle, middle America's attention about Trump? Yeah. You know, is he the, the, the most moral, ethical person? Probably not. I don't know if I really believe people in Washington are quite as squeaky clean as they yeah. present themselves to be. You know, I, I, I don't want to confirm what's probably true about me and making judgments. I do make judgments. I, I, I know that I do. And, and I, I try not to take myself too seriously because then anybody else would take me serious would be a huge risk. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I, the thing that caught me about Trump was at a uh, United Auto Workers, um, you, uh, you, it's, it's one of the larger unions. I think there are two auto workers unions. And um, I don't remember which major car manufacturer was going to move um, a bunch of jobs down to Mexico and open a plant. And th they were all democratic and left-leaning and uh, they decided that they would support Trump after something he said when he came and spoke to them. He said that if the Democratic lawmakers that have been exporting all of your jobs overseas and somehow finding a way to become a direct beneficiary financially of those policies continue to do this, we're going to destroy America. And so he made a commitment. He said that if, I think it was Chevrolet, moves their their plant from i think this is in in ohio actually you move your plant down to mexico i will put a tariff on uh, importing those vehicles back so high that it'll cost more to um, import them back to the u.s for sale to u.s consumers than would have cost to just pay their pensions pay them livable wages pay their benefits and provide them with job stability and and this was well over 10,000 jobs that could have been lost. Yeah. And at that point, the entire Democratic voting union swung to the right and voted for Trump. And I, and I kind of think that that kind of is just maybe a small uh, sample of what it is that caught people's attention about Trump. I don't think that he's a particularly gifted orator. Mm -mm. I think his smartphone should be taken away because he does not know how to play nice on Twitter. Although he is pretty entertaining some days. He's entertaining. Yes, we'll agree there. I don't think that he's probably always very clear-minded in some of his policy making. But I, and, and, you know, in preparation for this discussion, I was looking through an old article in the Washington Examiner about 289 accomplishments in 20 months and and i fact checked those things and this is a, a a guy that whether you want to say he abused his executive power or privilege was able to accomplish what congress could not yeah and i'm i'm really kind of just dumbfounded by the amount of things that he's done some things have, have hurt middle america i've got family members that are farmers up in north dakota and they're dealing with how they sell their grain across the border in canada um, and make any money and, and, and meet their operating costs for annual, you know, loans and capital mm -hmm. for, for, for operations. And so some of his policies have hurt them, 
but then there's other policies that have benefited them too. So they kind of take things in stride. You know, I, I, I look at that and I go, you know, I can't say he's a guy I'd want to have coffee with, but he's a guy that I would vote for to keep people out of office that I feel like may harm America. And the, so the main reason I voted for, for Trump was I just didn't look at Hillary Clinton as being the most ethical individual mm. to be in office. I, I have followed her. I've studied Well, her. no, you didn't vote for her because you don't want to vote for a woman. That's what it is, right? <laughs> That's what I, it is. <laughs> I mean. There, you know, I when I look at Democratic, uh, I probably lean more libertarian nowadays. And and quite honestly, I've I've I'm really questioning myself if I can vote for Trump again. Mm-hmm. I I just if a third party could work, I, I I want my vote to count. You know, I I I would love to be as idealistic and say, well, I'm going to vote libertarian, but I need a libertarian candidate that that's got a real strong, you know, possibility. Oh, you didn't like Gary Johnson? I, no <laughs> I, mean, I voted for know. him. I was, that was my proud, that, that was during <laughs> my libertarian phase. I even had a, I voted for Gary Johnson bumper sticker. I had my libertarian logo. I wanted legalized cannabis. That, you know, he seemed the most likely guy to give it to me. <laughs> well, you know, it's ironic that you say that because medical marijuana is legal in Arizona mm. and soon it'll be available recreationally. Medical and marijuana here in Minnesota. Is it legal there now? Um, medicinally. It wasn't last yes. year when we moved. We could get CBD oil, but we couldn't get any THC content in it. Um, well, medical you can, if you get a medical card, but there's like, I think there's like seven categories you have to fall into. Um, okay. PTSD is one of them. Cancer is another. I can't think of any of the others. Believe me, I've looked. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, I'll take I, a I, label I, for that. <laughs> I don't have any any uh, problem with recreational use of marijuana any more than I do with uh, recreational use of alcohol. Yeah. Uh, not here to say recreational use of methamphetamines. I might scratch my no. head and, and no. say, "Well, how do you explain you know wearing tinfoil around your head, digging in the dumpster for bolts?" Um, that the government removed as you hide from the shadow people. I, you know, I mean, yeah. how do you yeah. do that? Meth and flat earthers, just say no. Like, uh. <laughs> Actually, um, my wife's neurologist wants my wife to get on medicinal marijuana mm-hmm. um, because they've shown, um, they've got really good studies in- For epilepsy? Yeah, in pediatric epilepsy, mm-hmm. but there haven't been- enough studies um, to show its efficacy in certain types of epilepsy in adults. So they, it's, uh, there's more research going on and the, uh, the results will be published soon enough, he said. But he thought that because my wife is on all these benzodiazepine meds that are mm. really, really hard on the liver, the kidneys, um, and they're really difficult to get off, she's on three that help regulate seizure activity. Mm-hmm. That and that they they also make you really really skinny. So she's lost a lot of weight, um, and she needs to to gain weight. He said, "Well, marijuana will stimulate stimulate the appetite." Yeah. Um, and so he recommended that we get a certain kind. I can't remember the strain with you know maybe ten something percent THC content, just for the the psychoactive effects of it would actually elevate her mood and kind of lift her out of the depressive state that she can sometimes get in. 
So we're in the process of doing that. And the way that you can get it here in Arizona is, I mean, you can get it in an oil, you can vape it, you can take it as a pill, you can get it as an edible. Yeah. And that's the last thing I need is to have a brownie on the counter. Next thing you know, I've got red light bulbs. It might be the greatest thing you ever needed though, too. (laughs) You never know. I hear edibles are quite delightful. Lettuce. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, that's some funny tasting lettuce. Yes. Yeah. Uh, why do I want to listen to uh, you know Bob Marley all of a sudden? <laughs> but and I love Bob Marley, so don't get me wrong. But so, I love Bob yeah, Marley anyway. too. Yeah, it's good stuff. My ADD is in full swing. I'm sorry. That's okay. So, what do you think? Predictions? What do you think's happening here? You think Trump will win again? Um, honestly, I think Trump will win, and not just by a small amount. It'll be an absolute upset. Yeah. Um, just now I'm no political sci major. I, and I don't watch the news. I honestly do not watch the news because it, I, I just feel like it takes my energy and it, it just, it's bad juju. It's just bad vibes all around. So mm. I just kind of read articles, but I don't yeah. watch like, you know, any of the news stuff. I listen to Glenn Beck's podcast. That's about all I do for political and Maher, Bill Maher. I listen to him too. So I have a I little bit of both. I have a little Glenn and I have a little Bill and I kind of balance it out because I think sometimes they're both a little dramatic. But anyway, that's <laughs> that's basically legit what I get from my political news. And then once in a while, I'll read a few things or check out Twitter. But um, anyway, as far as aside from the news, just based on what you're, you're, you're gauging and what you're getting your info from, you think he'll win and significantly. Yeah, and, and when I say I don't watch I, I don't watch televised cable mainstream media news, but I do watch YouTube channels. Yeah. Through a, across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll even admit I'm a fan of the view. I, I just You know what? I watch the view <laughs> once in a while. Cause sometimes I'm like, what are they saying? You know, and, and it's not that I agree with them, but I like Whoopi Goldberg because she's Whoopi Gold Whoopi Goldberg Whoopi. and she was in Star Trek. The exactly. Next and she yeah, and Whoopi's just she's She's a little too left for me, but it's tolerance building. So, yes, it, it builds character. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I, you know, I think that um, a lot of things have been accomplished under Trump that will be sustained um, under Trump, and um, I don't see that Joe Biden probably is going to be a strong enough. Um, <laughs> I think Bernie had a lot of appeal for a lot of folks, but I. What happens in in with uh, in the Democratic Party is pretty cutthroat in terms of how they're pushing their their candidates forward. I'm not saying it's any less cutthroat in, in the Republican Party, but mm-hmm. I was surprised to see Biden get ahead. Um, I really thought Bernie was going to move forward. Um, I even thought uh, Pete might get ahead there too for a little while. Yeah, but I I think that they're looking at who's most electable. Um, versus who's, um, you know, can can really win the feel-good awards. <laughs> I, you know? I don't understand why Tulsi didn't get more support. I like her. And maybe that's because she didn't get support, because more right-leaning people like her, but she is a woman. She is a woman of color, and Warren drops out, and they're like, oh, now it's just two old white guys. And I'm like, you do know she's still in the race. Like, what are you doing She's trying to figure out how to get into the next debate. Did you forget? She's yeah. there. 
And it's so disastrous and so unorganized. I feel like they just threw people in there to throw people in there and work against Bernie. Honestly, that's what I think because they didn't want him last time and they don't want him this time. Because I want to, here's my, I think a lot of people supported Sanders publicly. But I think the reality was the people whom I believe have more control over the votes, the richer people, they are not going to sacrifice their money. They are not going to jump on Sanders bandwagon and go tax us more, tax us for everything. They want to keep their money. And Biden doesn't want to take their money. Sanders wants to take their money. And so for me, I, I kind of, to just justify what I think about all this is I think that's what's happening. I think people are publicly supportive of Sanders, but when it came down to casting the votes to, to toss out the delegates, I think it came down to real hard truth. I ain't letting go of my money that easily. And Biden's not going to take it as quickly. And I think that's what happened. It, it seems like the younger people want Sanders more. And I understand why. I think I, you know, he's promising a lot of free stuff and that sounds really good. (laughs) Everything is free. But then, you know, my son, he's, he's only 18 years old. And he says that a lot of people, a lot of his friends support Sanders and they're like free everything. And my son's like free. Everything means we work harder and hope we can keep most of our money because they're going to take it all. And they don't get that. They're like, what are you talking about? taxes will go up if he gives us free everything and they just it's like math it's math guys yeah i was just having this discussion with some friends like i make ten dollars less an hour in arizona than i did in minnesota and Mm, and i made really good income but i brought i had less discretionary income on a monthly basis in minnesota because my uh health insurance was higher Mm. my mortgage was higher, my property taxes, all the taxes in Minnesota from, I mean, federal, state to local to property to all these other things um, were eating into like the 60th percent of my annual income. Yeah. And down in Arizona, I make $10 less an hour, but I have more disposable income and more income as a whole because all my expenses are much lower because Mm. the taxes are lower. And that's kind of interesting that you know when you put it all on paper and i think if 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 they can actually you know put things out on paper and you can kind of see how it looks you know this this is what you get how much you're going to take home based on their tax ideas yeah i don't know if people like facts or they like the way politicians make them feel about voting for them but i i really hope there's an intellectual renaissance of of thinkers out there that that go, look, this is what the nuts and bolts of what you're going to get in this person's platform is going to be. Um, you know, here's this guy. He said he's going to do it. He did it. You know, and then that's, that's Trump. Where yeah. this other person's going to be like, well, they'll say what they think everybody wants to hear, but they won't deliver on their promises. And so my gut level instinct is... Um, that that's probably the reason a lot of at least people in the, 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 you know, I'm in my forties that people in that age group will probably vote for, for Trump. Yeah. Well, and and you know, the thing about Trump too is he is a seductress. 
And I don't mean that negatively because um, we all try and seduce each other. That's like what we do. Not only do we imitate each other, but we have to seduce each other to keep each other interested and, and attentive and for whatever exchange or purpose we have for each other. And he does that for people and he makes them feel included. And I do believe he's draining the swamp. I know people are like, no, he's not. He is outing so many people. He is showing us how much dirt is out there. And I want to, man, I wish the impeachment would have gone a different way. I really do. Because I feel like there was so, such a huge pile under the rug that he was ready to just, we're getting this out of here. And it didn't happen. And I think more people are going to work to keep him in the White House because they like what he's doing. Because he's not just exposing the left, he's exposing dirty people on the right too. And we need that because we know, we've known for years that politicians are dirty, greasy, grimy people. And they're going to try and do whatever they can under the radar. And I want to know about that, you know? And I just think there's so much that people aren't willing to see about Trump because they're afraid that if I acknowledge something good, that means I love him because of this whole guilt by association. I mean, so many people won't even take his invitations to the White House because they're like, I'm not going to give him a platform and applaud him. That's not what it means. That's not what it means. If you'd be willing to have a conversation with him, you'd probably find out he's a cool guy. But then what would we do if we had to change the way we feel about people when we identify by how we feel about people? You know what I mean? That would just, we'd have to look at ourselves a little bit more and go, well, who am I now? Well, there's a real psychology behind political analysis. You know, I, I look back over the eight years of Obama and, I mean, it really was a historical moment for America uh, mm. during his election. And, and he did a lot of amazing things. But mm-hmm. when you look at his policies, his policies were not that great. His foreign policy specifically mm. was extremely detrimental. And I think when, when Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State, her policies were also very, very detrimental. And I remember Trey Gowdy leading the House Judiciary mm. Committee and I, I remember, I, I used to just even YouTube this, like I'd look this up on YouTube, Trey Gowdy Smackdown of, uh, yeah. you know, of Hillary Clinton. And Trey Gowdy is a guy I would vote for president. That's the kind of conservative that I am. Mm-hmm. He's, he's sharp. I support law enforcement. I support the military. I really don't care for the death penalty. Um, I really don't like abortion. I don't. I'm kind of a bundle of contradictions too, you know, politically, those things don't define me. And there's, there's a reason behind that. But when I look back at President Obama, he became a, a symbol and he, he became a symbol of hope for a lot of people that felt like they had no voice mm-hmm. and were marginalized, mistreated by the system. And something interesting is, you know, coming out of those eight years, I mean, obvious real highlights obviously real low points in, in some policy. There are a lot of people that voted for President Obama um, that, that are African-American that I've seen kind of rise to prominence in the media. Take, for example, um, Diamond and Silk. Have you ever listened yeah. to those two ladies? Yeah, they're fun. They, now, I think they care, you know, and, and even uh, I'm watching um, someone like Kanye West. I, and I'll be honest, I've never really listened to Kanye West. I mean, I'm more of the the 90s hip-hop kind of stuff, you know, like Lauryn Hill and the Fugees. I mean, that's my vibe. Yeah. 
you know, some of that, that you know, G love and special sauce, all those kinds of things. But I, I look at um, the way that people look up to um, President Obama and seeing him as a symbol, we're really willing to overlook or not even examine some of his policies have now done an about face and they look at Trump and and all of a sudden they're concerned about his policies and his character and all these different things. And I think, that, you know, is this just a, a case of groupthink? Is this cognitive dissonance? And, you know, Lord help me, I don't want to judge people too much, but I do need to kind of critically analyze what, what is this phenomenon of them being so supportive here, but being so antagonistic there? Yeah. And and it's like I remember hearing hearing a, a Native American say, actually this is from the uh, Lower Sioux community, um someone that I worked with that, you know when it comes to the right wing and the left wing, <laughs> they're attached to the same bird. <laughs> so yeah. you know I thought that made a lot of sense that you know progressives and hyper conservatives um, are singing the same song. They've just got different lyrics. Mm. And they're they're they really mirror one another in terms of their just being antagonistic and judgmental and um, finger pointing and, and making accusations that they don't help evolve the dialogue to a place of what what can we actually do on a policy level that can really benefit people? Mm. You know, we've got we've got issues of education, um, healthcare, the most vulnerable. I mean, we, we need money going into education. Um, I would love to cut our defense spending in half. And I'm a huge supporter of the military. You know, I, I would love to see us treat the elderly with more dignity and respect. Mm. Um, yeah. I remember the days in Minnesota when, like the Wellstone days, like the Wellstone Parity Act in Minnesota, I thought this was such an amazing act where they had a line item of funding for mental health and chemical dependency. In, in Minnesota, if you did not have insurance and you were um, severely, persistently mentally ill and you couldn't live independently and no amount of social work or, or um, community-based mental health could help you, you could live on a campus that gave you dignity and respect and medication and helped you to find your own, your own baseline of, of uh, comfort and livability, you know, that the same group of Democrats led the charge in dismantling Minnesota's really advanced social services and the Department of Health and Human Services system. Now they have nowhere to go mm -hmm. except the emergency room. And then maybe they say something that antagonizes the person. They take a swing and now the, the doctor can say, oh, they tried to assault me between you, me, the fence post and the nurse. Jail is the only place they're going to get psychiatric care because they don't have health care. There's no social service funding for them. There's, there's no residential facilities for them. So I think that all of the things that used to make the Democratic Party amazing are gone. Yeah. And, and, and you look at how in the world did Republicans lead the charge in making sure there's funding for drug and alcohol treatment like Representative Dave Baker. And, and of course, he works across the aisle, which is really, really wonderful. So I don't want to malign too many people here. You know, there's... There's great people in both parties, but there's, I think there's a renaissance in, in, in Republicanism. They used to call them compassionate conservatives, mm -hmm. but I've never met a Republican that was just like, 
just sort of this straight up sterile intellectual. It's all about facts, numbers. There's no heart. There's no concern for the elderly, the mentally ill, the chemically dependent, the most vulnerable in society. To me, when I look at my history in the Republican Party, and it's all, they've always cared about these things. It's just how we get people the best help differs from what was on the Democratic side. Yeah. And unfortunately, I, it's things have gotten so divisive that I really feel bad for the most vulnerable out there. Yeah. So I, sorry, I got a little bit on the soapbox there. Hope you forgive me. <laughs> oh, I'll totally forgive you. Um, no, I hear Thank you. you. <laughs> I think, um, I think that's the saddest part is there's just such a, the democratic party is just dissolving before our eyes right now. It's like, there's, there's not even that much unity within their own party and I think the conservatives are trying really hard. The Republicans are trying really hard to maintain unity. That's why there is, despite the media's distaste, there is this kind of rallying support for Trump nonetheless. Because seriously, I don't understand how we as a country can be divided and hope that our president fails. Because that's kind of a failure for all of us. And that's the one thing I always go back to. It's like, if our president fails, what does that mean for us? Why aren't we willing to see we need to unite and focus on your efforts, whatever they may be, and this side focus on their efforts. And we can always come to the table and come to the middle and cross the lines and work towards what's best for the United States citizens, not what's best for the politicians. And I feel like that's what it's come down to now. They say things like Trump only cares about himself. He doesn't care about the the country at all. He's just doing things to benefit himself. And I'm like, he's the president. He literally every action, every move that he makes, someone's judging it, someone's critiquing it, someone's reporting on it. Like you've, you're the ones that have said that we have to watch him because he's the president representing us. And then you turn around and say, he's just acting selfishly. And I'm like, how does that even work as the president? You can't act selfishly. You have 50 million people bombarding you with all of these questions and problems to fix every single day. If Donald Trump was about himself, he'd say, fuck this job. (laughs) I'm firing my damn self. Bye. You know what I mean? Like, come on. He's losing money while he's in office. He's refusing salaries. And it's like, we can't find her. We, everything we have, we have to do. Everything is negative. Everything Trump does is negative. And I'm like, that takes me back to that whole woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Like, are you refusing to see that he's doing good? Why do we do that? And it's like, I'm, this is the truth. If Donald Trump ran as a Democrat and if he was a Democratic president, they would love him. They would love him. Sometimes I can't help but see, you know, some of these policies are a little left-leaning policies. Why are they not applauding this? <laughs> They're just mad because they didn't do it. Honestly, because yeah. everyone loved Donald Trump until he tipped his hat in for the race. You can't tell me Donald Trump was racist, sexist, nothing. Everybody loved him. homophobic? Are you kidding me? He was the first nominee to be that vocally inclusive of the gay community. No other nominee was doing that but him. And I just, everyone loved Trump. Everybody loved Trump until he became the president. What does that tell you? Well, the president is the most hated person on the planet. Ask Bush, ask Obama, ask Carter. You are the most hated person in the whole world. Sure, yeah. we understand that now, but you loved him before, and I'm just like, 
I'm over it. I'm like, you better get ready to love him again because he's going to be serving another four years with the weight <laughs> we're refusing to see what he, but in the same regard, yeah. I can't help but say, doesn't Biden remind you of Trump in some ways? I mean, the way that they have painted Trump, the way that the, the liberal media has painted Trump and now the way Biden is acting, I'm like, is this like a parody of, is, what, what are they doing here? They're like, Biden, we're going to just mini SNL sketches, pretend you're Trump on the campaign trail. What's yeah. going on? It's just two pieces of the same pod. I agree. <laughs> I, I, I mean, Biden makes me laugh. I mean, I remember when... Let me when, smell your hair. Was, Come here. <laughs> well, the sniffer, old Joe sniffer, you know, I, I just kind of chuckle. I remember uh, a meme I think it was actually it was actually true. He was playing Minecraft during a presidential speech on his smartphone and someone caught him. <laughs> and I remember laughing at that going, wow, even at the top of the the top of the food chain you can play Minecraft. I might need to check that out. But <laughs> you know, I I think your uh, your your summary there is is quite correct. I I think that uh Biden and and Trump are kind of they're kind of being lumped together in that that same way it's just that when it comes to like bare knuckle fights Biden will not hold a candle mm -hmm. to Trump Trump makes trolling look like an art form I mean this guy has got a doctorate in trolling this, this guy is it's he is like I mean, he is like the, the Marcus Aurelius of Twitter. Uh, I mean, of, of waging war, not necessarily making, you know, moralistic philosophical statements. But, yeah. I mean, Trump is, is he's just doesn't care, mm -mm. you know. He donates his salary. Yeah. This is a guy that, that feels like he could have he retired in the lap of luxury. He has put so much of his own money into his campaign and has not been bought off by corporate interest. Now, do I for a second think that he hasn't been influenced by corporate interests? Well, I don't think there's anyone in Washington, D.C. that hasn't been. I don't think but, any one of us could not be influenced if we were in the same position. I don't care how moral. my family up? Yeah. You're going to take care of me? Yeah. What do you want? Let me see what I can do. You know, like. I am not that self-righteous to think that I am above temptation. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, if anything, I've got enough character defects that I, I might need to stand in the corner if my grandma were to catch me. So, <laughs> you know, just to take the edge off. But I, I think it'll be interesting to see what the next four years look like. I, yeah. You know, with what's going on, the, the tariffs in China and, and the activity with China, now we've got this coronavirus stuff. Oh. And, and, and what, what are the geopolitical hot topics that are, I mean, what are we going to, what's this going to look like? Is that, I, I saw an article today that said um, uh, manufacturing exports to the West may be in decline due to coronavirus. And I'm like, yeah. how interesting it is that, that the Trump administration has radically realigned itself with China, making trade less profitable for them um, and, and more profitable for, you know, John Q. Taxpayer in yeah. America. Is, is there any coincidence? I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I can't even keep my doctor organized for Pete's sake. I don't know if oh. I can assess these these bigger issues, but you know, it's just a, just a fat bald guy who voted for Trump would would look at this and go, "It seems more like uh, more than a coincidence." 
you know, there are a lot of those going around. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of theories being shared. Um, coronaviruses. I don't even know. I don't even know what I think. Sometimes I'm like, oh, people, you're freaking out over it. Like a flu. Stop it. But at the same time, I'm like, uh, I, I'm cool with staying in the house, I guess. Yep. Don't want to, <laughs> you know, I mean, Seattle, 2.2 million people have been told stay, stay home, stay home. And, you know, Glenn Beck puts on quite a panic. Of course, he dramatizes everything. And he's thinking like, do I need to stock up on toilet paper? Like what is going on here? You know? And, but at the same time, people who are 60 and older are the most vulnerable and they're our most vulnerable population always. And so it's like, what are we going to do for them? And I, yeah, I just don't know what to think about this. There's so much panic and fear though. And it's not helpful. I think, I think I appreciate how Trump and Pence have tried to keep the calamity to a minimum and have tried to just be encouraging and like, okay, we're going to take care of things. We're going to do this. And it's sad that so many people are like, not good enough. And he's not an expert and what a dummy. And I'm just like, ah, like who (laughs) could prepare for this? Who would have known coronavirus was going to just show up? And now you want Trump and Pence to be scientists and doctors and to speak the proper jargon to you and what panic you or calm you. Cause I'm all for the calm, you know, maybe Trump, this is the time you could think about federal legalization of cannabis to help calm the nation. <laughs> I, I, Donald Trump, if you're listening, I'm just putting it out there. I would be on board. There could be a lot of benefit to that, but um, yeah, coronavirus. I that's just, a great, that's a great quick plug, by the way. <laughs> You know what, people? Don't worry about the corona. If you want to know my honest opinion, just cannabis and sex. Don't worry about anything else. Just go do that. Honestly, I had I had it's your <laughs> podcast. You can say whatever you damn well please. <laughs> damn it, right? Um, <laughs> that's what I think, though. I'm like people are too focused on politics and coronavirus and not enough on each other. That's for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. You know, I. I, did you happen to catch the story about the Harvard professor um, that had taken money from China and and the two um, students of his at Harvard that one was caught leaving with biological samples of the coronavirus? This professor no. was detained at an airport. He was getting $50,000 a month and more from China for his work. He was a, the department chair of chemistry at Harvard University. And where his research was going was Wuhan province, where the coronavirus first emerged in China. Mm-hmm. That was the major area quarantined. I forget the name of the actual city, but I just thought, strange things. Strange things, things are going on out there. Do you, think, do you think it's possible they just released it at this convenient time to just create chaos? I think there's powers and principalities out there that might I, work you know, towards I, something I wonder, like that. Well, if you think about it, um, I mean, back 100 years ago, you have the Industrial Revolution leading into the, the Technological Revolution, and they used to be able to rely on, on world wars to kill millions and millions and millions of people, population control, yeah. you know, redistribution of wealth and assets, and that was an easy way to do it, but that hasn't been as publicly acceptable <laughs> yeah. for a while, and so what would be a good way to curb the population in China? Mm, you sound like my friend. My friend was talking about this at lunch with me a couple weeks ago, and I was like, "You think they're culling the herd?" And he's like, "I'm it- not much. I don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist, but I do wonder. 
I mean, yeah. I, I am. I do wonder. I, I've seen the dark side of humanity mm-hmm. enough to not put it past people to do things like that, especially mm-hmm. in China. I mean, I I read an article that there's a coronavirus case in North Korea. They just shot him. <laughs> You know, don't bother trying to cure the guy. Like, or, no, just or, get rid of it. Bye. Yeah, just, you know, so that side of the world, I mean, in America, we're pretty pampered. We, mm. I mean, even even the three, you know, I mean, even the, the, the 3% poorest are 80% more wealthy than third world nations. I mean, yeah. just based on income. And, and I, it's like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Mm. I just wonder. I do too. Well, my friend put it like that in, in it, you think about the people that kind of hold to these utilitarian ethics. You think, well, you know, if they think they're doing something for the greater good, a few years back, Bill Gates said something about vaccinations, decreasing population by 10%. There's a lot of things you could put together and think there could be a global agenda, but. I'm sure there's a YouTube video on it. We just got to do our research. You know, I have seen, I, <laughs> I have friends that will send me stuff and I'm like, yeah, I've seen that. Here's my advice. Stay off the YouTube. Cause the flat earth stuff's pretty convincing. Let me say, you know, for, I'm not, I, I had, I think I had my family convinced I was a flat earth theorist just because I think I spent like a week just going, all right, I'm going to dig deep into this and see what's going on here. And so yeah. I'm like, they're like, were you up all night watching YouTube videos? I was up till 3 a.m. watching flat earth videos. Okay, guys, I want to just break this down to let's think about this. And they're looking at me going, mom, what are you saying right now? And they were worried. My husband was worried. But it's interesting because those videos will make you think. They, and I think that's what I appreciate about them. Love the flat earth people. Don't buy what you're selling. But I love how these people can be creative enough to make me think. And that's what I want for the world, thinking. So there you go. Well, you know, in, in terms of plugging great YouTube content, um, and, and this kind of tiles back to um, the, uh, the psychedelics um, oh. stuff, um, is uh, Jason Silva, Shots of Awe. Okay. He's the, he's the um, host of Brain Games, mm. I believe on either Nat Geo or Discovery Channel. His Shots of Awe, is one of the most inspiring video uh, content creators on YouTube that I've, I've ever seen. And it was, it was interesting because I have done a lot of my own research with, you know, with trauma and like ayahuasca and microdosing of of LSD um, and treating trauma and addiction. And it's really remarkable. Um, You know, these views would probably be pretty controversial to a lot of my former colleagues, but, I think that I'm just gonna let I'm just gonna lay it out there. This is my honest opinion. In the next 20 years, talk therapy and group therapy are going to take a backseat to psychopharmacology. And mm. uh, I, I think that it's it's interesting that even in ancient cultures, the pineal gland is so prominently depicted, and that the pineal gland isn't as active today because of its calcification because of our diet, but if you look into that thing and you crack it, which is what they say when you, you actually are tripping or you, you kind of break through to the other side, reality folds in on itself and you, you take that journey, as they say, that it's, it's actually got the same kind of rods and cones that you have inside the eye. Mm. There's an internal perception of a world that isn't visible consciously that you can tune into. And, and a lot of people 
have some really interesting theories about that. But what I find kind of intriguing about that is the actual research that's going on and the quality of life. I mean, they're taking combat soldiers. I'm, my family's a huge military family. I'm a huge supporter of the military. What they go through is incredible. The, the combat stress is just... Um, Here's a quick interesting fact. Jesus bled in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know how it's recorded in the scripture that he sweat drops of blood? Mm-hmm. The only other place that phenomena has been observed is combat soldiers. Soldiers in combat, their capillaries will dilate, their pores will dilate, and they will sweat drops of blood. That intense level of trauma has been treated psychedelically with um ayahuasca lsd the street name of it's molly what is what is it actually called i can't remember um, um I but anyway you know it's yeah and mushrooms too i hear mushrooms are oh, even yeah, having breakthroughs yeah, in fact, mushrooms when i I'm, I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict i don't know if i told you that i've been sober 24 years wow from alcohol um and sober 26 years from drug use but that's when I was actively using, I used, um, I put a, <laughs> you know, in West Central Minnesota, how you just kind of take what you can get to entertain yourself, mm-hmm. do what you can. Yeah. You know, we all got, we all got dirty laundry in the hamper. I mean, obviously we do. Well, I, I got a bag, a bag of mushrooms and me and a buddy not knowing how you dose this stuff, uh, how you use it or even how to ingest it, decided to throw it on a Tostino's pizza. Oh and I'll God. tell you, that was three days of sick that I would never wish upon my worst enemy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But for the other little, like, micro dots and sugar cube experiences I had raving uh, up in the Twin Cities, at, uh, have you ever heard of uh, um, First Avenue? Uh, yeah. We used to go there for what they called Sexorama, and then they changed the name to Pleasure Dome. Yeah, I saw well, the Fugees there, actually, at First Avenue. Oh, you just name dropped. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm so Before jealous. I even knew who they were, I think I was like 15 and I didn't even know who they were. And they're like, you want to see the Fugees? I'm like, first dab, let's go. Anyway. I met Chris, I met Chris Novoselic, Dave Grohl, and uh, Kurt Cobain after Nirvana concert and got to uh, shake hands and give them a hug after their loadout oh my in 91. God. It was 90 or 91. So I'm name dropping too. But but anyway, the whole the whole. <laughs> The whole point is, is, is I, I remember um, the experience being really, really interesting and it didn't scare me. Now the, um, the mushroom experience scared the hell out of me. And so what I've learned is that if if they could use um, hallucinogenics in a controlled environment where, you know, like with ayahuasca, they call it mother ayahuasca and they've got trained shamans or spiritual leaders that can cultivate the experience and, and help guide people that has real therapeutic benefits. But there's also university controlled studies where they're doing this, where they're using, you know, PhD psychologists and psychiatrists and MDs um, that are taking their cues, you know, like from these folks in Costa Rica and Peru and where they're, where they're doing these ayahuasca journeys um, and looking at the therapeutic benefits. How do we dose it? What sort of efficacy does does it have at this this dosage, and applying real hard science to it, and the the interviews that I have seen on YouTube of the beneficiaries like soldiers, there was one guy that that was he, his suicidal ideation was off the charts. I mean, every single day he was looking on how to get high, because that's the only way he could shut off the suicidal ideation. Mm. And when he had, I think it was two or three sessions. 
and I believe it was, was with ayahuasca, he was able to get in touch and make peace with the pain he had from the combat trauma, from the things the U.S. government required of him as a soldier, things that made him cross the lines in his own values as a, as a Christian. I thought, we are missing the boat here. There's something to this. No amount of therapy helped this guy. I, my dad's a therapist, so I'm not saying that therapy has no value. But when it comes to trauma, as you're probably well aware, to talk about it is only reliving it and reinforcing it. Yeah. And, and there's got to be more than just tapping your forehead and clicking and you know doing things that, that does work for people. I don't mean to knock that. But this is a way that's, that's visual it's internal, it's personal. And the fact that they come out feeling closer to the God of their understanding or to the faith tradition of their own choosing is really remarkable. Yeah. So, sorry, I got a little bit long. Oh, no, that's good. No, I'm, and I, and you, you know this too, but I just interviewed Jack Call, who wrote Psychedelic Christianity, who talked about his tripping experience too. And and he told me it wouldn't be good for him to not recommend it. Cause I was sitting here like, I've never done it. And I don't know if I would be in the mental headspace. And he's like, you should do it, you know? And I'm like, yeah. And my husband's like, you might like it and want to do it all the time. But I don't think that seems <laughs> to be the case with people. There is incredible research coming about that talks about the positive effects of hallucinogens and such. And, you know, I sometimes can't help but wonder if that's why they keep it from us. You know, if we can't figure out how to regulate it and distribute it and make money off of it, they can't have it. I have always felt that way because I think there are so many things that come from nature that would benefit us mentally and spiritually and physically. And it's like there's some system out there just designed to make sure we can't get our hands on it because it, it needs to be profited from. And um, that is why I'm a proponent of legalizing cannabis and all drugs. But <laughs> had to sneak that in there. Right I there. have to. I got to sneak it in. I think. But yeah, there's just there's so many breakthroughs coming about that are helping people with trauma and PTSD. Oh, PTSD is just it seems like the real epidemic that we should be fighting against right now instead of coronavirus. Uh, but we should fight that too. But anyway, oh, I could talk to you for hours on end. And I think I'm going to have to bring you back because you are working on a book and you have a blog called The Dusty Disciple. And there's just so much more to you, Jeremy Evans, that we should try and peel back again. So, well, that's nice of you to say. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, I just want to encourage everyone to check you out. The Dusty Disciple is the name of your blog, right? Yeah. Well, it's, it's uh, www.authorjeremyevans.us and, and then hashtag uh, Dusty Disciple. Okay. And then they can find you on Facebook too, if they want to connect with you and hear more about you. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Okay. Well then let's do this again, because this was a pleasure and an honor. And thank you so much, Jeremy. Well, thank you for being you. And, and I just, I, I love the content you put out and the conversations you have. You make me think about things I never would have thought about before. Okay. Oh, then I'm doing my job right. <laughs> <laughs>